What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with the best of the best. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to what? Unlock human performance. That's right. On this week's episode, Whoop VP of Performance Science, Principal Scientist, the fearless, the epic Kristen Holmes is joined by Simon Hill. Simon is a physiotherapist, nutritionist, and author on a mission to help people make informed lifestyle choices. In 2021, he published his first book, The Proof is in the Plants, which makes a case for a plant-based whole food diet, drawing on all the latest nutrition research. As of 2023, his podcast, The Proof with Simon Hill, has been listened to over 30 million times. The Proof extends beyond nutrition to other crucial lifestyle factors that impact our well-being. Kristen and Simon discuss Simon's book and the research behind his philosophy, creating a diet that is suitable for the individual, essentially understanding how your body reacts to certain food groups, an in-depth look at the plant-based and whole grain diets, the power of legumes and some of the myths around them, how to get enough protein on a plant-based diet. This is something I was certainly interested in. They touch on plenty of non-meat alternatives that are loaded with protein how WHOOP members are tracking various diets, and how nutrition can be linked to sustainability and the environment. If you're looking to join WHOOP, you can visit our website and sign up for free. That's right, free 30-day trial. If you like it, become a member. If you don't, send it back. It's that simple. You can also use the code WILL at checkout, W-I-L-L. Get a $60 credit on apparel and accessories. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast.whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952, and it might just be answered on a future episode. This is obviously a very diet-focused and nutrition-focused podcast, and it's also very oriented towards plant-based. I want to be clear that Whoop does not have a strong opinion on what diet you should be on, but we do believe it's a highly personal decision in that whatever diet you're on is going to affect your body and probably your body differently. So you should manage it by measuring it. And as part of that, we've also had other people come on the podcast, most recently Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who talked about the importance of a meat-based, heavily protein-oriented diet. We got a lot of feedback on that podcast, so now we're showing the other side of the spectrum, which is plant-based. We'll continue to have more folks on. Without further ado, here are Kristen Holmes and Simon Hill. Simon received a Master of Science in Human Nutrition from Deakin University. During this time, he established his podcast, The Proof with Simon Hill, where he hosts world-renowned doctors and public figures who share their significant experience in translating the latest research into actionable lifestyle recommendations. As of today, Simon's podcast has been listened to over 30 million times. Simon, welcome. Kristen, thank you for having me in this beautiful space. I know. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, admittedly, this is an area that I actually I don't know a whole lot about, a lot about so I know I'm going to learn a ton today, so I'm really excited for that. I wanted to start in, so in 2021, you published the book, The Proof is in the Plants. Congratulations on that. Um, in the middle of a, a pandemic. Uh, totally. Maybe not the best timing, but. No, no. Well, I'd love for you to describe just the thesis of that book and really what motivated you to kind of take on what is not an easy project. The motivation was I felt like people are are extremely confused about what to eat for good long-term health. And I think talking to friends and 
family members and people that I was working with, it almost seemed like people felt as if we didn't have enough information to even inform our food choices and yeah. that all the science was conflicting and you could find any science to support any view, which that part is true. Right. But it's not as though science is completely conflicting or confused. I understand why people may feel that way, but when you have the actual skills to get into the research and understand and appreciate the context, and yeah. that key. so when you're digging into certain studies, you're thinking about things like the dose of a nutrient or a food, how much is someone eating, or if, if you're considering a particular nutrient or food, what are you comparing it against? Right. In a study that's comparing high and low, what is high and low? These are relative terms. Yeah. So how much contrast is there between that exposure of interest? What subject group are we looking at? Are we looking at children? Are we looking yeah. at uh, pregnant women? Are we looking at postmenopausal yeah. women? Are we looking at elderly? What, what is the control? Like right. the control. <laughs> What, what outcomes are we interested in? Are we looking at surrogate things like changes to blood biomarkers like cholesterol, or HIV, um, blood, blood glucose markers? Um, are we looking at triglycerides? Or are we looking at hard health outcomes like increasing strength or cardiovascular uh, events like a heart attack or a stroke or the development of a certain type of cancer? And then, you know, beyond that, for when for who, if we're looking at a particular compound of food, we then also have to appreciate that there are some genetic differences right. as well between people. And it's not until you're actually aware of that context and then appreciating it and looking across a body of literature and not at a single piece yeah. of evidence. Yeah. Each single piece of evidence is important, but it, it, it has to be considered within the wider body of literature looking at that and yeah. appreciating that not all study designs are equal in terms of validity and reliability. Right. So when you consider all that, and, and I think when I explain that, people go, wow, there's, there's a lot to this. Yeah. But when you are appreciating that, it becomes very clear that while there's not like one diet that I can say, Chris, here's a prescription for just eat exactly this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that clear. There's a bit of grayness, but there's a, a theme that I like to describe to people. And that was the central part of my thesis in my book was to help people understand that thing. Mm. It's diets that are low in saturated fats. They tend to be rich in unsaturated fats, particularly polyunsaturated fats. Mm. Uh, we can get into what this looks like from a food perspective. Yeah. Um, it's diets that are high in fiber. They provide a good amount of protein based on that person's needs, mm -hmm. their activity levels and goals and has a bias for plant protein. It can contain animal protein, but certainly compared to the average person's diet today, 85% of proteins from animal foods, mm -hmm. it's more emphasized, em there's more emphasis on plant protein mm -hmm. and it's low in ultra processed foods. And so that thing might seem a little bit vague to people and, and we want absolutes. Mm -hmm. And that's why books that are selling you an absolute that's why they sell so well and they're on the best sellers list and people gravitate to dogma because right. it simplifies things it simplifies things and i understand that like there is some beauty to simplifying something so that people can grab hold of it sure so i don't want to make it too gray the way that i kind of tie that together is say 
that that theme that I just described is generally achieved in plants that dominant to exclusive diets. But that could be a Mediterranean diet, which in the literature is described as a form of plant-based diet. It could be a pescatarian diet, the DASH diet, which is used in the literature a lot for blood pressure management, another form of plant-based eating, vegetarian or plant-exclusive diet. And the commonality of all of those dietary patterns and why they reduce your risk of cardiometabolic um, disease in particular, which covers most of the diseases that are uh, reducing health span, increasing the number of years where people have lower quality of life. All of those diets are low in saturated fat, have a good amount of unsaturated fats, they're rich in fiber, they have much more plant protein than the average diet today, and they're low in ultra processed mm-hmm. fats. The nice thing about that is there is a lot of variations of this theme. So you have choice. And in working with many people, it's become super clear to me that the biggest problem or hurdle that we have, obstacle, it's not that we actually need to know more information about what to eat. We actually just need to be able to do what we know. And the hardest thing is adherence. Yeah. Finding something that you enjoy it's healthy for you, so it's looking after your health today. If you're great today, it's going to reduce your risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, type 2 diabetes, yeah. metabolic syndrome, having a heart attack, etc. And you can stick to it over decades. Because that's what, when we're talking about food, it's all about lifetime exposure. Right. It's, it's very much like cigarettes, where people talk about pack years. Right. So we have to think about our diet. I would rather people try and find one of those variations and do it imperfectly over decades then do something perfectly for two weeks and so that's the kind of i guess the central thesis to the book that i wrote in 2021 when it comes to nutrition and then in the book i also expanded upon the conversation and spoke about some benefits of leaning more towards plant exclusive diets in terms of the effect on the environment, which I think that research is, is super clear, and of course, animal welfare. And my my position was not to tell people to go vegan. It was that if we're going to have a conversation that is about food and goes beyond just our health, I think firstly you have to separate it. You need to be able to talk about how food affects your health separately, because often that line is blurred. You see it online, it becomes very emotional. Then you talk about the environment and animal welfare, and I think there is a strong case to adopt a diet as plant exclusive for you. Mm-hmm. So again, that comes back to the individual can be the only person that can actually assess that based on their circumstances, how they're feeling, yeah. their lab work, their goals, all those yeah. things. Talk a little bit how you kind of, I imagine in your book you talk, you elucidate the difference between kind of diet and lifestyle. Just maybe, and I heard that as one of the core themes, just maybe expand a little bit on people were to just engage in a diet, you know, for two, four, six, yeah. eight weeks, you know, versus like a lifestyle. What does that behavior change actually look like? And, and how do you frame that up for an individual? I think when we approach diet, yes, the mindset is more temporary. This is an on-off mm-hmm. type thing. Um, but it comes back to understanding that if our goal is long-term health, so that's got to be a starting point. Firstly, yeah. people need to understand what is their goal. Yeah. And also that comes back to what are your values. So often we just skip over all that 
uh, and then we're making changes to our diet, but we're really not sure why we're making those changes. Uh, or it's something superficial, and, 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 and for me, the superficial thing, it can be a good motivator initially, but often you need something a little deeper to, to, for it to stick long term. Or you get the result you're looking for, the superficial result, we've all done it, and then you just drop off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, six months later, you do it again, and that's kind of yo-yo dieting. The difference is that you're in it for the long game. You understand that in terms of how these foods affect your physiology, so how insulin resistant you are, the way your heart's working, your liver function, the way your brain's operating, it's about chronic exposure. Mm. It's what you're doing over decades that, that really matters. So I think we have to get out of this mindset of diet now and something that we're just kind of hopping on and off and instead try and find some variation of that theme that you can stick to over the course of your life. And it might vary a little as well. Yeah. What were some of the key scientific findings that you highlighted in your book that kind of led you to believe that plant-based kind of whole food diet is really the, the path? Yeah. Each of those different dietary things that I mentioned that fit mm-hmm. in that theme, you, you see a lot of the very consistent results in terms of how they're affecting people's health. So first and foremost, as you're shifting from more of a standard diet to any of those variations, you're seeing improvements in blood pressure in the realm of 10 millimeters of mercury drop in systolic blood pressure. To give people context, how important is that? Mm -hmm. Every 20 millimeter increase Mm -hmm. in systolic blood pressure, Mm -hmm. you double your risk of heart attack, stroke, or other vascular events. So we're talking about quarter so 25% reduction in your risk mm-hmm. of any of those events by adopting one of these dietary patterns if your systolic mm-hmm. blood pressure comes down from say 130 to 120 mm-hmm. where we want it so, so dietary patterns so you're talking pescatarian vegan vegetarian med- mediterranean right. those those four those four yeah. right okay yeah so and maybe we define those if you want yeah, yeah that might be helpful yeah like, the, the basic premise of all of those is that um, whole grains, legumes, mm-hmm. nuts, seeds, lots of fruits and vegetables, these are filling the plate. Right. And in the Mediterranean diet, there's room in there for meat. It's mm-hmm. usually more like white meat and fatty mm-hmm. fish. There's some dairy in there. And it's very similar to the DASH diet in many ways. They're, they're, what does that acronym stand for? So just uh, Dietary Approach to uh, stopping hypertension, I think. Mm, okay. So that's, that's similar, and there's a, there's a low-sodium kind of um, DASH diet as well. Mm. And then you know, vegetarian is, is mostly plant-based. There's mm-hmm. some dairy and some eggs, depending on the type of vegetarian right. diet that someone adopts. Pescatarian is that plus fish. Mm-hmm. And then a vegan diet is completely plant-exclusive. But I guess yeah. we should be very clear here, you can do a vegan diet very poorly. We're talking about one that's not full of ultra-processed vegan foods. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's those whole foods that make up the majority of calories. And the reason why these diets reduce blood pressure is when you're eating that way relative to a standard diet, you get a huge reduction in sodium intake. You get a big increase in potassium intake. That lowers blood volume, which lowers blood pressure. And hypertension or high blood pressure is a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We've made massive inroads in terms of reducing cardiovascular mortality, 
And a lot of that is is through pharmacology and also reducing cigarette um, yeah. smoking. But if we want to squeeze cardiovascular disease out of society, we have to address hypertension. These diets help with that. We also have to address LDL cholesterol or more, more specifically ApoB. That's a, that's a long discussion to explore what ApoB is, but let me just say high level, this is now believed to be a much stronger predictor of cardiovascular risk than LDL cholesterol. And you can ask your physician to, to listen to to Peter Tia. He'll talk a whole lot about ApoB. Yes. So you can listen to Peter Tia. I did a seven or eight hour long series with Thomas Dayspring. Oh, who no Peter Rattie has also had on, yeah, yeah. and that came out like four or five months ago. And it's like if you if you really want to deep dive yeah. ApoB, okay, then great. do that. We'll but be the, sure we that. But all of these diets will help lower someone's ApoB, and they they do that because they have the emphasis on unsaturated fats and de-emphasized saturated fat. And just very quickly, the mechanism there is saturated fats essentially they downregulate a receptor in your liver and make it much harder to clear cholesterol, to clear ApoB, whereas the unsaturated, particularly polyunsaturated fats in fatty fish, nuts, and seeds, they open up those receptors and allow you to clear more. So these diets will shift that potent risk factor in the, in the right direction. All of these diets as well will help improve insulin sensitivity. That's through a couple of different mechanisms. One is as you lower your body weight, you become more insulin sensitive. And naturally, when you eat the way that I'm describing, this is a lower calorie density diet. And we know that calorie density affects how many calories you're consuming over the day. So the more volume there is in your food, less calories per bite, the less calories you're likely to eat over that day. So these diets can be very good at helping someone if they want to lose weight as well, which helps improve insulin sensitivity. But insulin sensitivity is also improved independent of weight by the type of fat you're eating. And this is lost on people. The literature is very clear on this. Even if you're not losing weight, when you reduce saturated fat and increase polyunsaturated fats, you see improvements in blood glucose control. Insulin sensitivity improves. So you get that benefit. You'll see there are fairly robust associations with each of these diets with a lowering in inflammation. So less of, I'm talking about chronic inflammation here, not so much the acute inflammation that we want if we get injured or have an infection that we need to clear. I'm talking about that more low-grade yeah. inflammation yeah. that causes a lot of collateral damage. Yeah, and, just like sleep. And right. So that underpins a lot of these chronic disease processes, mm-hmm. including um, dementia. Yeah. So that's, I guess, a, a bunch Certainly yeah. not limited to those, but those are some of the big reasons why shifting to these diets mm. really protect you against you know, chronic diseases that we've kind of normalized in our society, but it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. In terms of like ease of entry, so low barrier to, to entry, what would be the taxonomy of those four diets in terms of like, you know, yeah. is Mediterranean kind of the easiest of the four? Like, how This is a great question. This is one of the best questions I've ever been asked. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because it's so practical and it's 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 uh, often it's often missed. <laughs> you know, we can go down all of these rabbit holes, and as I said, you know, we have enough information. We just kind of need to make it simple for people uh, and easy to to grab a hold of. I would say that the Mediterranean diet is the 
the sort of most comprehensive diet from the point of view of if you just want to adopt something and you don't really want to go to the next level of researching about certain nutrients of focus and, and filling some of the gaps, which you do need to do as you go to any extreme. If you were to go to the carnivore extreme or to the full yeah. vegan extreme, and, and you know some people may want to explore that territory, but you probably have to think a little bit less and there's probably a little less that can go wrong with the Mediterranean style diet. Now, most people, when they think of Mediterranean diet, are probably not thinking about it how it is in the literature. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we probably should sort of define that a little bit more. It's, it's not necessarily just eating a lot of pizza and pasta and red wine. Right. I think there's room for a glass of red wine here and there to enjoy mm -hmm. ourselves. But mm -hmm. the, the diet is, again, it's based on you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. whole grains, legumes mm -hmm. so there is certainly much more emphasis on plant protein than there is in, in the standard diet yeah. and when it comes to meat it's leaner cuts of meat which is important because that will reduce that saturated fat intake the dairy that's included tends to be fermented dairy and i think that's quite consistent with the literature looking at, at dairy foods it's so mixed and it's because there's all different types of dairy and again what are you comparing to it seems like we should really be reducing our exposure to butter. That's going mm -hmm. to really jack up your ApoB yeah. quite quite significantly, and that does real trend there around yeah. butter. It's a trend around you know quote unquote ancestral eating, natural eating, and that's a whole other discussion. But yeah. I, I don't think our ancestors were interested in longevity. So, and and I don't think evolution is particularly concerned with how healthy you are at seventy or eighty. Mm -hmm. I think evolution is uh, you're, mostly you're concerned with are you going to procreate exactly. So. Um, I'm not sure adopting our ancestors' strategies is wise unless we have the same goals as them. Yeah, being biologically um, that's totally right. different. I, I think most people listening want to procreate and be around for as long as possible to enjoy that time with their kids and their grandkids. So the Mediterranean diet is where we were talking about what the Mediterranean diet is and what it's not. It has that bias for for, for plant protein and then it's those leaner cuts of meats. Mm -hmm. There's fatty fish in that mm -hmm. that dietary pattern. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a, a good sort of starting point, and to even go a step even more simpler here, I would say the biggest swap that someone could make if they're eating currently a, a diet that's not consistent with what we're describing mm -hmm. is two swaps here. I would say. One is, instead of cooking with butter, cook with olive oil. Mm. And the second is, instead of eating red meat four, five, six times a week, try to half that and replace that with legumes. Mm. And naturally what's going to happen here is you're going to lower your consumption of saturated fat, you can increase your plant protein, uh, and you're going to increase your fiber. And these are all things that will shift those risk factors that we discussed before into the right direction. And that doesn't have to be an all or nothing play to begin with. Now, I'll work with people that often I say when people are like, I just don't know where to start. Mm. Keep your recipes as they are. Don't yeah. go on Instagram and think you have to create these three, four hour long right. recipes every right. night of the week. Really That's not yeah. sustainable. Yeah. You know your lasagna recipe or whatever you make. <laughs> okay, let's just say that there's a pound of minced beef in there. Mm -hmm. Translating that because converting because I, I work in grams, but let's just say it's a pound of minced beef. Well, can you half that and have half minced beef, half lentils? 
Mm. You won't even know. It's going to yeah. taste the same. You just you put a rundown of what ex actually a legume is. Lots some folks might not even know that. Yeah. So a legume is anything from uh, lentils, chickpeas, beans. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different varieties of beans. Mm -hmm. It also includes tempeh, which is mm -hmm. a fermented legume product. Often it's made with soy, but now it's made with chickpeas and other types mm -hmm. of uh, legumes as well. And tofu, that's another one. Why do folks rail against legumes? Where do we start? What? Soy and hormones comes up. Right. People think that soy contains estrogen. It doesn't. I mean, you'd have to have bags and bags of it, right? Like yeah. in order to... <laughs> and it doesn't contain estrogen. It contains polyphenols, which have been labeled as phytoestrogens. It's not mm -hmm. estrogen. The reason that they're called phytoestrogens is that they can bind to the estrogen receptor. Right. But there's a number of actual benefits that are up for grabs for, the, for, for that. And yeah. so you see in the literature, women in, ja in Asian populations who consume soy early in life have way lower risk of breast cancer. Mm. Because by binding to the receptor, the, the thing that people are overlooking is they're thinking that when it binds to the receptor, it's mimicking estrogen. But it's relative to estrogen, it's about a thousand times weaker. And what it's doing is it's blocking estrogen. So... A lot of these types of cancer, whether it is breast cancer or prostate cancer, they're hormone-dependent right. cancers. So there might be some, some benefits up for grabs. I'm not saying that that's definitive, but if anything, it's leaning towards being positive right. for cancer risk reduction for certain types that are, that are hormone-driven. Right. So people think that it contains estrogen. It doesn't. People think that it's going to mess with your hormones. And this has been tested in women and in men. Usually this comes from men who are worried about it. They think it's going to really tank their testosterone. There's a meta-analysis two years ago looked at 41 clinical studies in humans. This is important because if you see someone making this claim, they're going to cite an animal study that was fed so much soy that you would never be exposed to in right. your diet. This was 41 clinical trials from two weeks up to a year long, look, feeding varying amounts of soy and those phytoestrogens mm -hmm. to men and looking at estrogen levels, looking at free testosterone, total testosterone, all the things. And there was no significant changes. There was nothing to be worried about. That was the conclusion of that paper. And am I saying that people should just eat unlimited amounts? I, I wouldn't recommend that for any food. Probably run into problems if you had unlimited dairy or unlimited know, nuts and seeds it's, you know we want a balanced diverse diet but two or three serves of that a day is not going to be an issue or something for people to worry about the other the other thing that comes up is lectins i'm sure you've heard that oh, yeah <laughs> so this is this is another one and this i think explaining this also covers the whole plants are trying to kill us type message about defense chemicals in general yeah the dose really matters here. So, you know, as I kind of just pointed to, you can find a study, an animal study, where you isolate something out of a food, mm -hmm. which firstly is not always reflective of how that compound acts within mm -hmm. a food matrix. Mm -hmm. So you isolate it out and you expose an animal to it at a, an amount on a milligram per kilogram basis that we would never be exposed to. And, for example, with lectins, you could show some increased inflammation or in, in animals what would be described sort of colloquially leaky gut, increased mm -hmm. intestinal permeability. But 
we have to remember that that's highly reductionist. It's not the right dose. Mm-hmm. So what we've seen at that level, while interesting and might be hypothesis generating, you have to test it. And maybe if there's no other studies, you might just take the precautionary principle mm-hmm. and say, hey, we've seen that. Until we know more, let's not eat legumes. But this has been absolutely tested. Yeah. You, you can look, find studies where they fed humans lots of legumes, measure inflammation. If anything, they have reduced inflammation. Studies looking at hard health outcomes and in populations where people eat varying levels of legumes. Mm-hmm. People that eat more legumes are living longer. They have less risk of cardiovascular disease. The one thing that I would say is that it is quite clear that lectins can be a problem if you're not cooking your food or properly preparing your food. So there are some studies where people were fed raw dried beans, basically. Mm-hmm. They were well undercooked yeah. and they had some digestive symptoms. Right. And so, I mean, when, no one's recommending anyone has rice that hasn't been soaked right. and cooked or legumes that, I mean, it would be right. really um, not enjoyable to eat yeah. a, a, any type of legume that hadn't been soaked and, and cooked. Right. And when you buy them in a canned form, they've already been soaked and cooked. Right. Right. That's taken care of mm-hmm. for you. But if, if, you know, when when you bite into a legume, it should sort of sit in the back of your mouth and it's soft. Mm-hmm. If it's hard and crunchy, it's undercooked. And I wouldn't recommend you're, you're consuming that. But people that are consuming them in the properly prepared way are experiencing better health. So yeah. I, I just think that that's another example where it's, it is easy to kind of cherry pick a certain mm-hmm. study and get people scared about lectins. Yeah. But I could do that with oxygen. I could... I could honestly, I, yeah. I could, and I say this to people all the time, I could hook someone up to 100% oxygen, pure oxygen, and they'll pass out and I'll kill them, mm-hmm. right? Does that mean that oxygen's toxic and not healthy? Yeah. Should we stop breathing? Oxygen in the air that we're breathing is 21%, and that, yeah. at that dose, it's, it's yeah. life-sustaining. It's important. Yeah. So the dose is, is you know, really important here as well. And, and this is just something it's for people to be logic. aware of. With so much information coming out, I think it helps to be discerning. Yeah. What are we looking for? If you're looking for someone, if you're, if you're seeing that someone is generating a lot of fear because fear mm-hmm. drives clicks and the algorithm loves it, yeah. just, just be aware of, of you know, where are they getting that information yeah. from. And often some of the clues are these are people that are very overly dogmatic, confident, mm-hmm. they're... They're not speaking with any type of nuance or context, mm-hmm. which I think some people, you can fall into the trap thinking that that person knows more mm-hmm. than the person who's putting in some caveats and saying yeah. maybe, perhaps, yeah. that can come off as a bit of weakness. But if I'm looking sort of outside of nutrition for someone to provide advice in another area of mm-hmm. science, those are the type of things that I'm looking for. Yeah, I think it's important and a really good call out. So I think legumes, it's important to get into because that's a feature of all these different diets. I think that, you know, if people are looking to do Mediterranean and vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, like legumes are going to need to be a feature of, of that diet, right? In order to kind of be as healthy as possible inside that diet. Yeah. And to say. get enough protein. And I, yeah. I think that within the plant-based community, there are certainly quite a few people who kind of downplay the importance of protein. Yeah. I don't think that's a good idea. That's right. <laughs> I, I think that protein is really important. And yeah. the, I think the discussion around protein and long-term health for me is more about the source, not the amount. 
I think mm. we have to have more of an emphasis on plant protein, but I also think we need to get enough and it is important yeah. for a number of different functions in the body, but particularly important for maintaining muscle mass and strength yeah. as we age, both of which are predictors of longevity. How do you, what are the best plant proteins? Like, what do you kind of recommend? Tofu, tempeh, all those other legumes that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. There's also seitan if people mm -hmm. are not celiac or gluten sensitive. Mm -hmm. TVP is another product that's not ultra processed yeah. and is very high in protein mm -hmm. per calorie. So all of those are, are options. I think if you're an athlete, then adding in some type of protein powder can be convenient. Yeah. And I think athletes... Is that the only way to get that full chain of amino acids? Like how do you actually... No, yeah, that's a great question. Just to finish that, I think yeah. athletes, all athletes, not all, but most athletes use some type of protein powder mm -hmm. from a convenience point yeah. of view if they're trying to get to an optimal level. And that could be a whey protein or a plant protein mm -hmm. kind of shake. The protein quality question is a good one. Proteins made up of amino acids, mm -hmm. some of which are non-essential, some are essential. So nine of them are essential, which means that our body's not making them. We require them through nutrition. And often, I think people have been led to believe that plants are missing mm -hmm. some of these essential amino acids. That's not quite correct. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can define that a little bit more. All plants contain all of the nine essential amino acids. Mm -hmm. And I know when I was at university, they actually didn't teach us that. They taught us that you know, quin quinoa and soy were complete proteins that contain all nine essential amino acids and other foods were missing them. Mm. That's, not, that's not correct. Mm. What is correct is that the definition of complete and incomplete proteins needs to be understood here. It's not saying that if it's complete, it contains all nine, and if it's incomplete, it's, it's missing those nine. What it's saying is an incomplete protein is a protein that if you ate that food for all of your calories, at the end of the day, you would fall short on your requirements for one or more of those amino acids. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, but it's really only interesting to people in developing countries that have no access to food. Right. Right? That's where that becomes really important. If someone's getting all their nutrition from one grain. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you're eating with some, you know, just a modest amount of diversity, providing you're eating enough calories and total protein, that mm -hmm. takes care of itself. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in an app like Chronometer, which is a free app. Mm -hmm. Plug your food in, whichever one of these variations of diets that you choose over a day, I think this is good for people to do anyway for a little bit. I'm not saying that everyone needs to track their food and calories long term, but it can be helpful to see... What are you eating? You know, how much saturated fats in there, unsaturated fat? Are you getting all of these essential amino acids? Are you falling short on any micronutrients? That app will display that in a, in a nice, uh, very visual way. So I get people not to focus so much on combining foods. I don't think mm -hmm. you, people don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. What I do like them to focus on is just knowing they're eating enough protein. Because when you're eating enough protein, enough calories, all those amino acids take care of mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you're not an athlete and you're someone who's just you know, recreationally working out, mm -hmm. then 1.2 to 1.3 grams per kilogram, I'd say, is the lower amount where I'd mm -hmm. want someone to land. There are some people that argue that you only need 0.8 grams per kilo, which is the RDA. Mm -hmm. I 
I'm not I'm not on that team. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I think that you're more likely to run into problems there in terms of recovery, ability to uh, build mm-hmm. muscle, stay strong. Mm-hmm. And there was a recent study just out that makes me believe that even more. And then if you're an athlete and you're really optimizing and you work training hard, you've got a lot of volume resistance training, then you want to be at, the, at least 1.5, 1.6 grams per kilogram. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help you recover. That's going to help you get the adaptations that you want. The, the exercise is the stimulus that provides the stress. And then for the body to adapt, it needs that the nutrition to come with it. But even at that 1.2 to 1.3 grams per kilo, when you look at studies that have looked at varying protein intakes and strength mm-hmm. with resistance training, you get most of the benefit in strength at by 1.2, 1.3 grams. Yeah. You squeeze out a little bit more as you get up to 1.5, 1.6, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not a huge amount. Right. Yeah. I wonder, like, for folks who are not eating animal proteins, which in some ways is just easier to get protein, right, for the most part. Maybe that's not true. Well, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's easier for the average person who hasn't spent any time thinking about plant protein and where protein is found. Right, and so people are just kind of doing what they know, but with a with a very small amount of time invested. I mean, I reeled off those foods. Honestly, if you just put them side by side into a chart, you'll yeah. see how protein rich they can be. Yeah, and if you were to go and do two or three days of eating and mm-hmm. including those foods in your meals, you'll see it adds up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can kind of understand on face value why it may seem easier, but mm-hmm. you can definitely get enough protein from eating only plants. I mean, I yeah. only personally only eat plants and I had my DEXA scan today and my fat-free mass is in you know, top 5, 10%. Wow. So it's possible. certainly possible. And I'm not sitting around, I can't remember the last time I have ever counted protein. I'm not sitting around yeah. fussing about that. I just know what foods contain protein right. and I make a concerted effort to feature them and emphasize them in, in my meals. So mm-hmm. Step one is just actually knowing where you find mm-hmm. protein in plant foods. Are plant foods, are they more calorically dense than like an animal protein? Not necessarily. Often they're actually less calorically dense, mm. which surprises people. You know, some foods like salmon are quite calorie dense yeah. foods, yeah, even though, sure. you know, we see them as healthy. And I would argue they are healthy. Mm. I think that fatty fish like that is, the, the research shows positive health yeah. outcomes. But... Tofu is not more calorie dense than salmon. Right. Right. And, you know, TVP or seitan, like seitan, mm-hmm. which I, I mentioned before, which people can, can consume if they're not celiac or gluten sensitive, is like 80, 90% protein. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's absolutely possible to get enough protein without consuming extra calories. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that is something that people think. And there is the idea out there that, oh, you'd have to eat more calories. That's not the case. Yeah. I can make someone a meal plan with 2,000 calories that has 160, 170 grams of protein. And, and part of the art in that is manipulating some of the other kind of food groups, yeah. you know, changing things around in terms of nuts and seeds and yeah. whole grains. So Mediterranean, what would be the next kind of diet that you would pescatarian be kind of the next in terms of ease of entry? Yeah, I think, you know, as you sort of step away from Mediterranean and you're mm-hmm. reducing animal foods, mm-hmm. usually from 
just the point of view of being familiar yeah, with, with yeah. something or less familiar. So we're eliminating meat and right social. Now, we're just so fish. It's, it's like the social element and also just what you're familiar with sort mm-hmm. of gets a, a little bit trickier mm-hmm. uh, to, to navigate. And then also some of the nutrients that you need to be more aware of. Mm-hmm. So you step to pescatarian. That's, you know, for most people that that sort of land there, they find that quite sustainable. Mm-hmm. And there's really not a whole lot to think there around micronutrients because mm-hmm. you're, you're still getting some B12, you're getting mm-hmm. DHA and EPA, omega-3s, mm-hmm. you're getting iodine. Yeah. These are three of the nutrients that I would say are of focus as mm-hmm. you step away from a pescatarian diet. So as you get into a more vegetarian or a vegan diet, mm-hmm. then there are some micronutrients that, you want to be aware of now at the same time the vegan diet also has a lot of extra pluses it usually comes with much more plant protein much mm-hmm. more fiber more polyphenols and antioxidants mm-hmm. so you're it's not just a, a trade you're not just sort of stepping towards uh, an inferior dietary pattern there's pros and cons all diets yeah. have pros cons some limitations and it's it's just worth being aware of them but mm-hmm. certainly uh, probably have to be a little bit more aware as you're removing animal foods and shifting to plant exclusive. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure you're not becoming deficient in a key micronutrient. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed certain biomarkers uh, for folks who maybe are I'm just wondering if you have any data, folks who go from standard American diet, let's say, and then they shift to a plant-based diet what would someone expect in terms of biomarker changes? I know this is pretty yeah. unique to an individual, but and and any you know changes in sleep and you know heart variability. You know, is there anything that you know from the data that that show? Yeah. So shifts? from a biomarker point of view, the further you shift along that spectrum, mm-hmm. the more the ApoB comes down. Mm-hmm. So we see from clinical intervention studies looking at essentially completely plant-exclusive dietary patterns, maybe a little bit of animal foods, but not a lot, you can get about a 30% reduction in your LDL cholesterol, which is you know, akin to the 30% reduction in APOB. We would assume they didn't necessarily measure APOB in those studies, which is important. So if you're considered low risk of cardiovascular disease, so you don't have hypertension, type 2 diabetes, you haven't had a cardiovascular event, you're not a smoker, you want your ApoB at 80 milligrams per deciliter or lower. The average person in this country walking around is at about 120, 130. What does that mean? Well, that means that every day and every night they're laying down plaque in their artery. Yeah. We know that. There's studies showing that where you look at people that do not have other cardiovascular risk factors mm-hmm. but have varying levels of LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And... What you see is at this 120 to 130 level, which a lot of physicians would say is mm-hmm. quote-unquote normal. Is that a relatively sedentary individual? or No. I th- well, you wouldn't assume you know? so. I mean, these are people that have normal blood glucose. Okay. They don't have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. They don't have type 2 diabetes. So we would assume that they're, they're relatively healthy. They're going to probably be moving their body in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And at 120 to 130 at least half of them have subclinical atherosclerosis. So they're laying down plaque and it's not causing a heart attack or stroke at that point in time because it takes decades. So those people, if they don't get on top of that, 
through diet or through pharmacology will be one of the statistics when they're mm -hmm. 50, 60, 70, where they have a stroke or a heart mm -hmm. attack. So you can, you can expect about a 30% reduction in mm -hmm. that figure through diet if you take it more towards the, the extreme. Mm -hmm. And that's how I would say for people to navigate this. Mm -hmm. I think as you're making changes and you're sort of trading down on some of these animal foods, whether it's Mediterranean or pescatarian, retest where is APOB at? Is it, if you're a low risk person, is it below 80? Mm -hmm. No? Okay. Do you want to make some more changes? If not, if you say, I don't want to make any more changes, well, maybe you can think about pharmacology mm -hmm. to help you get there. So, or if you're high risk and so you've had a cardiovascular event or you have type 2 diabetes or you're a smoker or a combination mm -hmm. of these, hypertension, then APOB should be at 50 milligrams per deciliter or lower. Right. So you might be motivated to make more changes to your diet, mm -hmm. particularly if you're someone who's thinking, I don't want to be relying on a medication. Mm -hmm. Well, then that person might say, you know what, I'm going to make all the dietary changes that I can make. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of motivation to do it and they can yeah. adhere to it. Uh, or, again, it might be a combination of the two. Blood pressure-wise, you can probably bring that down by 10 millimeters of mercury, which I mentioned before, yeah. which is about a 25% risk reduction in uh, of, of stroke, heart attacks, mm -hmm. or other vascular events, you will, you would certainly see improvements in your blood glucose. So HbA1c, fasting glucose, but also triglycerides, if you're not eating refined carbohydrates, mm -hmm. that's important. So again, with your carbohydrates are mostly coming from fruit, whole grains, and legumes, mm -hmm. not from packaged foods, right. cookies and cakes and pizzas and white flour stuff. Mm -hmm. How much those numbers will improve will be a little bit subject to whether or not you lose weight. If you do lose weight and you're able to reduce particularly the fat that is in and around your organs, mm -hmm. so visceral, visceral fat and, and ectopic fat, mm -hmm. that's the really metabolically damaging fat. Right. And again, yes. I said before that one of the, one of the sort of um, nice things about these dietary patterns is their low calorie density. So they can help people lose some weight and clear out some of that visceral fat, the ectopic fat that is leading to the insulin resistance and elevated blood sugar. Right. So they can really improve their metabolic health and you know, lower inflammation I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things that people see on their blood tests. You mentioned sleep. Again, if you lose weight, you're going to sleep a lot better. Yeah. If you exercise more, you'll sleep a lot better. Yeah. So all of these things are kind of tied together. Yeah. Our members have the ability to track various diets. So we have as options, you know, paleo and vegan and vegetarian and intermittent fasting regime, which I really want to ask you about and ketogenic and dairy free diet. Yeah. What do and, you see? I'd love to know. Oh yeah. I have those data. <laughs> Can you guess? <laughs> oh, I, th I think probably any number of those is probably better than a standard American diet, but I'm betting that a lot of people using Whoop aren't, aren't eating a standard American diet. Yeah, I mean, we definitely trend toward the healthier uh, folks without a doubt. But yeah, we, so we basically took all the members' data who are tracking these things consistently. We took all their data from the month of June. Yeah, and we found that um, the average resting heart rate among members across all six diets was actually lower than the average in, of the age and gender matched group. So we had kind of an age and gender match control group, and then we had all these people are tracking diets. And the vegans saw the lowest resting heart rate, and theirs was 55 beats per minute compared to the gender match group, which was 60 beats per minute. 
Did that, did you look at recovery? Did that translate um, to better recovery or? Yep. So I'll, I'll get there. Yeah. So, and yeah, I guess just wondering, you know, I, I think you kind of alluded to this, but I think the lower, the, the less inflammation, the lower your resting heart rate, generally the better your sleep, but would love to hear just your thoughts on why you think the lower resting heart rate for the, the vegan group was you know even maybe uh, even, Look, even I, above I, I'd be, vegetarian I'm hypothesizing here because yeah, i haven't course. seen i mean yeah. this is interesting for me because i've kind of wanted more data to speak of this, to this kind of data, anecdotally yeah. and i don't love anecdotes but yeah. anecdotes can be more interesting when there isn't any data out right, there right. and anecdotally one of the kind of areas where you hear a lot of people adopting a plant-based particularly vegan diet is towards mm -hmm. the end of their career so it's like the older athlete who's having difficulties re with recovery. Right. It's not and adapting as well as maybe they were previously. And, and they'll say yeah. that their sleep improved and their recovery time improved. Mm -hmm. And to date, you know, the, the hypothesis has just been that, well, they're probably less inflamed. And my lab tests sort of corroborate that in terms of my inflammation is extremely low. So is my visceral fat. Yeah. So on my DEXA scan, my visceral fat was 0.01 pounds, which is basically... Dang nothing yeah, and similar. and i think that that comes back to this too so that comes back to the type of fat that mm -hmm. we're consuming but also whether we're in a calorie surplus or right. not so i'm very active and probably not in calorie surplus often right and my fats are mostly unsaturated mm -hmm. and when you keep that visceral fat down you, yeah. you will reduce inflammation a yeah. lot that visceral fat is very inflammatory so um, i mean that's interesting yeah. data but it, i think it probably ties back to inflammation Yep. And heart rate variability, the vegetarian diet saw the highest heart rate variability. That group was 59.47. Yeah. So anything different in the vegetarian diet that might yield a kind of higher HRV, which is, you know, good corollary to recovery and, you know, inflammation. Uh, I mean, what vegetarians relative to, to vegans are often getting a little bit more calcium potentially a little bit more protein. So, mm -hmm. you know, those are usually the two big differences in the diet. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how those are interacting with HRV, but again, mm. interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> and also sleep quality and duration and consistency. So the degree to which you stabilize when you go to bed and you wake up, which is more behavior routine type thing, was definitely, it was best in the, the vegan and vegetarian group. Interesting. And I know we're kind of winding down, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about just sustainability and environment and just, you know, what is your, what are your, what's your philosophy there? You know, I, I know that this is an area that you think a lot about. Yeah. I think if we're privileged enough and uh, to, to be able to consider how our food choices affect the world around us, I think we have to. So I kind of, I, I really appreciate that not everyone is that privileged. There are people in you know, developing countries or people in low socioeconomic status that are just mm -hmm. trying to make it through to the yeah. next day. So yeah. this is a very privileged conversation. But it's, it's extremely clear that food is impacting the environment in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. And you know, more so than, than fossil fuels in that fossil fuels is mostly greenhouse gas emissions. And food certainly is affecting greenhouse gas emissions and there are greenhouse gas emissions attached to the food that we eat but it's yeah. so much more than that it's we've turned earth into a farm and so if someone values the environment like they, they enjoy getting out into nature and they feel better from that 
then I think they're the type of person that does want to do the right thing by the environment. Like we're taking from it, let's give back. Mm. And when you look at, so greenhouse gas emissions are certainly much higher on a per, pro, per gram of protein or per um, kilogram or pound of food for animal foods relative to plant foods. Now there's a deep discussion there because it's not all the same, like yeah. beef and lamb are right at the top in terms of the biggest contributors and then it drops wow. off a lot with you know, pork and chicken and eggs, yeah. much smaller. But yeah. relative to any of those, to produce those protein sources that I said before, like tofu or tempeh or legumes, and we're talking in the realm of 20 to 40 times less greenhouse gas emissions. It's a lot. It adds up. Um, and probably the most important thing, though, is the land use. So I said we've, we've turned Earth into a farm. More than 50% of habitable land is used for agriculture. Mm. And 83% of that land is used for animal agriculture, both through having animals on land and grazing or also growing crops directly to feed into those animal food systems. Mm -hmm. But that 83% of land is only giving us 18% of our protein. It's extremely inefficient. So what, what is up for grabs here is if we can get the world to shift to more plant protein, it means we can use less land. We free up land. And this is where a sustainable food system actually ends up, is in conservation. It's taking land that's currently used for agriculture and rewilding it, restoring it into natural habitats that sustain the earth systems. And people will often say, well, how are we going to do that? Because farmers own this land. They bought it, they've invested, they have mortgages. And this is not about wiping out farmers and making them bankrupt. The entire sustainability or the ability for us to address this problem rests on shifting incentives. So right now, what is a farmer incentivized to do? They've got this land, they've paid this mortgage, they, they need to uh, generate some type of income. The only thing that they are incentivized to do is to extract calories out of that land. Yeah, they have to dominate the land, yeah. right? And so domination is what has got us into this place, in the first, got us here in the first place. So if we want to work with the land, we have to get away from a domination mindset. Mm. And the only way to do that is to shift the incentives. So if you own some land, instead of me saying the only way you're going to get paid is by producing beef, calories, or whatever you're used to doing, I'm going to pay you to restore and rewild. I'm going to pay you based on biodiversity. Now we start creating an ecosystem that is actually considering the environment. And we, sh we reduce our overall agriculture footprint so we can produce more calories from less land. And in the process, we bring back biodiversity, we bring back water stores, uh, there's less eutrophication, which is pollution into waterways where you get algal blooms and it starts mm -hmm. to starve um, animals of oxygen and you get all these dead zones in, in water. And when these ecosystems come back, it creates a more resilient environment. That's That's... That's what environmental resilience is, biodiversity. And so if we are appreciating nature and we want to give back to it, we have to think about the way that we're consuming and each time we're voting for a world that where there's more deforestation and less nature or more nature, greater biodiversity and something that we can enjoy and our kids can enjoy and you know, future humans. Yeah. Where would you say, where's the best place for people to learn more about that specifically? 
chapter nine <laughs> of my yeah. book. Uh, that's a plug. Great. No, no it, they can read. They can read that there. That that chapter. The chapter talked about. Yeah, I mean that I mean, chapter was one of the most eye-opening chapters that I wrote, and it was really inspired by. I had a number of conversations on my show with people like Hannah Ritchie from Our World and Data. She's a geoscientist, yeah, yeah. and it's interesting to think about how all these people eat. So she's pescatarian. Uh, and then Jonathan Foley, who is at Project Drawdown, which is a big sort of climate change organization. And he eats a little bit of meat, but it's like very, very rarely based on all this research. And Nicholas Carter, who's an environmental scientist, uh, he's been on the show a number of times and we've talked about regenerative grazing and some of the claims that come out of that. So yeah, read chapter nine, and there's a bunch of those episodes that people can can go and listen to if they want. And then our world in data is this website that is absolutely fantastic. You can go on there and look at, you can get super granular and look yeah. at all of the different foods that we might eat: greenhouse gas emissions, land use, wow. um, eutrophication, water use, all of that, and uh, it compares everything. So you get a sort of good relativity um, to it. Beautiful. Well, this has been really fascinating. I appreciate your time. Where I know your Instagram is is amazing, and you have loads of followers. Is that the best place for folks to kind of follow you? Would you say or? Yeah, that or the podcast. So yeah, I, I probably connect with people most on the podcast, which oh, is nice. the proof. Yep. And from a social media point of view, I'm across all the platforms, but Instagram is at Simon Hill. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to get a little bit more nerdy. Twitter and okay. your, and your uh, game for everything that takes place on Twitter. It's an interesting place, and you can find me at the proof. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been, it's been awesome. a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you to Simon Hill for coming on the Whoop podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. Please subscribe to the Whoop podcast. Check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us podcast at whoop.com. Call us 508-443-4952. If you're thinking about joining Whoop, you can sign up for free 30 day trial. If you like it, stay on it. If you don't send it back, it's about as good as it gets. New members can use the code Will. Alternatively, get a $60 credit on Whoop accessories. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the Whoop Podcast.